Wow, what a beautiful and fitting hymn, even as we prepare for God's word. Let us turn to him at this point in prayer. Won't you bow with me? Our God and Father in heaven, we worship you and we adore you for you are the great God of heaven and of earth. You created all things and through you all things were made. We count it a joy, a joy and a privilege to come into your presence this morning to be able to call you our heavenly Father. Though you are the ruler of heaven and the whole universe, Lord, we can come into your presence and bring before you our various requests, big and small. And Lord, though you are such a great God, you care about our inmost being. You care about the finest details of our lives. Not only are you a great God, but you are a loving Father to your children. And you provide for us in a special way. We thank you for how day by day you remind us of your generous provision to us. And how you provide not only for us alone, but even for the wicked. You provide air and food and sunshine and shelter, all these good gifts to people who hate you. Oh, you are a good God, Lord, and you have chosen us to be a people set apart in this world. You've called us to live according to your word, and you have given us the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who convicts us of sin and leads us and guides us. And together you are building up your church, Lord, that you may get all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. And as such, Lord, we thank you for this local congregation that meets here at Grace Baptist. We thank you for the testimony of this church and how you have continued to bless the labors of the hands of the men who have labored in your ministry. How you've continued to build this church and add to its number. How many have come to know you through the years. And how even we can be in this building reflecting on how you have brought us here. We are reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness to your church. And how you are building up your kingdom and adding many to it. And this day, Lord, we think of all our brothers and sisters across the world who meet together to worship. Some have already done so, and others may are yet to do so. Lord, we thank you for the unity that we enjoy, that though we are so different in many ways, yet we, say we serve the same God. Thank you for the beauty of this unity, of being your people, and we pray that your church would continue to prosper wherever your gospel is preached, wherever the truth is proclaimed, and where you're worshipped in truth and in spirit. And we remember Brother Thomas this particular time, even as he is away in Malawi and uh, finishes up his trip and makes his way back, we thank you for how you have sustained him while he has been there how you have used him to preach and to teach and strengthen those who are laboring in Malawi. We pray that his labors would bear much fruit, even more than he can imagine, that as these men return back to their churches, they would be convicted of the truths that they have heard at these conferences, that they would in turn go and teach their congregations and this would continue to multiply we pray for him as he returns back to America that you would grant him safety as he flies back, that there would be no issues with uh, the aircrafts or with the luggage or any of the other logistical details. May you return him to us and may you grant him good health and grant him rest and strength as he recuperates after a busy time. We also rejoice with Katie and Jonah Crocker we thank you so much, Lord, for blessing them with a baby girl in the name of Hadley. We thank you so much, Lord, that you have 
uh, added this beautiful young girl to their family and that both her and Katie are safe and well after the birth. We pray that you would be with Jonah and Katie as they go through various changes in the days and weeks that lie ahead. We pray that your grace would be upon them and that you would grant healing to Katie and recovery and also continue to be with uh, Hadley as she continues to grow and develop even in these early days where she's um, fragile. Lord, we pray that you would watch over her, help her to grow, to be healthy and strong. Commit her into your hands, Lord, asking that you would be at work in her, that you'd bring her to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, at a young and tender age, that she may hear your gospel preached and that she may come to faith in Jesus Christ. We want to continue to lift up before you our government and those you have called to serve in positions of authority over this country. We pray that you would grant them wisdom. We pray that you'd grant them humility and a heart for your people. We also pray, Lord, that they would seek after and desire the truth and that they wouldn't promote anything that contradicts your word. Lord, we are saddened by the state of this land, even as we continue to see how things go from bad to worse in many ways. But we pray, Lord, for the salvation of the leaders that you have placed in office. For we know, Lord, without them coming to faith, without them repenting of their sins, they cannot do anything that is good. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to work in the midst of our rulers and authorities that you have placed over us. We also remember the first responders, many of whom are represented even in our congregation, uh, men and women who serve tirelessly, who give of themselves and sacrifice so much uh, to take care of those who are wounded and those who are hurting and, and to help us help the power be restored. We thank you, Lord, for all these people who endanger their lives to take care of the community in which they serve. We pray that you would use them and you would protect them even as they're out laboring this day. Won't you protect our police forces as they seek to keep the city safe and fight crime? Won't you protect them, Lord, as they endanger their own lives? We continue to pray for our church and the missionaries represented. We thank you for the many missionaries that are supported through this church and we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to continue using them in whatever you have called them to do as they serve your church, as they proclaim the gospel. We pray that you would attend to their needs and that you would keep them safe, even as some serve in countries where their lives are endangered for preaching the gospel. We pray that you would protect them and that you would bless them with many uh, converts and much fruit from their labors. We also think of the ministries of this church, Lord, and we pray that you would be pleased uh, to bless them, that you would use the men and women who teach your word and help them to be faithful, not only in teaching, but also in the way they walk. And Lord, we think of the upcoming family camp, and we pray even as we get closer to it, that you would be with the men who will be preaching your word and teaching us during this time. We pray that you would use them as they prepare to teach and that they would encourage us and strengthen us, but that you would use your word uh, to, uh, to, to work in them even as they prepare. We pray for all the logistical arrangements that still need to be made and for the travels that will be undertaken uh, to the campsite. We pray that you would keep everyone safe who is traveling on the roads. And Lord, as we now turn to your word, we look at this letter written by the Apostle Paul. We pray, Lord, that you would once again speak to us from your word. We're reminded that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it's able to penetrate to our inmost being. And Lord, as we come to your word, we come expectant. We become expectant to have an encounter with you, to learn more about you and, and your son, Jesus Christ, and his work in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would be with me too as I preach your word, that I would not err from the truth, that you would give me strength and boldness to proclaim 
what your word commands. We pray, Lord, that you would be with the hearers too. Grant them attentive minds and hearts to not only hear your word, but also to put into practice what your word teaches us. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we will be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. And we'll be wrapping up this letter today as we look at the final remarks that the Apostle Paul gives us in these verses. And as we've been studying this letter together, we've heard the Apostle Paul express his thankfulness for the church in Philippi and for their support of his ministry, how they have given sacrificially and how they have supported his work not only by being alongside him, but also by giving financially to his ministry. And though he has talked about this finally in the verses that we are considering this morning, he explicitly thanks the Philippian church for the way they have given to his work and how they have continued to remember him even as he is in prison. So we will read uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. Hear the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to it. There are two extremes that Christians want to avoid when we think about the material possessions that we have. On the one hand, we want to avoid materialism, but on the other hand, we want to avoid asceticism. Materialism... Uh, teaches that one would find their happiness or their satisfaction in the material possessions that they have. Somebody would hold so dearly to the things that they own or possess that if they were to lose those, they lose their sense of joy. They find their security in the material possessions that they own. Whereas on the other extreme, asceticism teaches that it is by, by forsaking the things of this world that we find satisfaction, that it is when we forego the things that this world has to offer, the pleasures that this world has to offer, it is then that we are growing in godliness. It is then that we can be considered to be truly holy. Now, these are the two extremes that we want to avoid as Christians. We realize that as Christians that are called to live in this world, we can have possessions. We can own things, not just the most basic necessities, but we can even have things for our pleasure and luxury. 
But the problem is when we begin to find our sense of belonging or hope and security in those things. It is when those things become our God that it is a problem. And we ought to be constantly checking ourselves and evaluating ourselves to see that we are not holding on to what God has given us in that sinful way. But on the other extreme, we want to avoid thinking that when we abstain from these possessions, it is then that we are growing in godliness. What is important is the attitude of our hearts. And so this morning, as we consider this passage of Scripture, a passage that no doubt is familiar to many of us, or we've heard it quoted in various settings, or maybe have seen it on social media, we want to be reminded that as Christians, we must have a heavenly perspective on earthly possessions. Christians must have a heavenly perspective on earthly possessions. And so as we consider this topic together, we're going to look at it under two major headings. We first of all want to see that Christians must learn contentment. Christians must learn contentment. And secondly, they must use their possessions for the Lord. And so as we make our way through these two headings, we will see how we can have a heavenly perspective on the earthly possessions that God has given us. Just to help us again in terms of context, we see in the verses that we just read that Paul is addressing the gift that he has received by the hand of Epaphroditus. Uh, the Philippians have sent this gift, and we've already seen how Epaphroditus was, he suffered with illness as he sought to deliver this gift to Paul, who is in prison. And so in verse 10, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so Paul, in beginning to thank them for this gift, acknowledges the practical nature of the delay that has taken place. He acknowledges that though they sought to give this gift to him, there has been a delay, but he acknowledges that they did not forget about him. They indeed were concerned about him. And later on, again, uh, in verse 17, we'll notice that he says that it's not that he seeks the gift, uh, but he is more concerned about what this gift that they have sent says about them as a church, about the individuals and the corporate body of Christ uh, there in Philippi. So it's the context of that that Paul then speaks about contentment. Uh, he goes on then to say how he has learned uh, that he's not speaking about being in need, and then he has learned verse 11, in whatever situation he is to be content. And so we want to spend some time uh, thinking about Christian contentment, as the first point is that Christians must learn to be content. Uh, Jeremiah Barrows gives us a very helpful definition, and if you have today's bulletin, you'll see um, a little excerpt on the back of it, but he gives us a definition right at the end of that uh, printout. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, there, that is very loaded. And, and just to put it into perspective, Jeremiah Burroughs is writing this book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, which consists of his sermons. He preaches, I believe it's about 12 or 13 sermons just on these two verses. And so you can think about how extensive uh, this topic is, and we could spend a lot more time uh, than today morning. But this is not going to turn into a series on contentment. But I do want you uh, to take time to read this book. I would commend it to you. It's a very helpful reflection as we live in this world. So this is the, the definition that Jeremiah Barrows lays down for us. And there are a number of uh, things that we can see, even from the definition he is offering. And we'll unpack that a little bit more as we uh, continue to think about contentment. The first thing we notice is that contentment is truly a mystery. Contentment is truly a mystery. Look with me again at our verses. Paul says, uh, I know how to be brought low, verse 12, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret 
of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here Paul talks about a secret uh, or the mystery that he has learned. And if we think about it, if we watch, if we've seen any Christians who have gone through very difficult circumstances in their lives, we can, we can notice that it's truly counterintuitive. When we look at the way they're reacting or responding uh, to whatever situation that they are going through, which is difficult, where they feel like they have been afflicted, it's, it's beyond human reason in a sense. But the fact that it's a mystery brings out to us the, the reality that it is something that is hidden and then is revealed. It is a secret because, as we will later on notice, is that something we learn as Christians. Uh, when we become Christians, it's not that we instantly become content in the Lord. In fact, contentment is something that we will continue to wrestle with this side of eternity. There is, it's not a final destination where we can say, I am now content. We go through seasons of life where we, we find ourselves to be content in the Lord, and then we drift away, and then we come back, and we are reminded through the various means of grace, by reading God's word and so on, that we need to find our contentment in God alone. So it's truly a mystery because it goes against what this world teaches, but it's also something that we are to be learning as Christians. But before we continue to look at the aspect of learning, we must note that one of the greatest enemies to contentment is comparison. We struggle with contentment because we are so prone to looking to the left and the right, figuratively speaking. We compare our situation, our circumstances to others around us. And this comparison can take on all kinds of forms. It can start in a playground where a child is comparing his peanut butter and jelly sandwich with his friend's chicken sandwich. Or it can go to grandparents comparing how many grandchildren God has blessed them with. And so it takes on all forms. We don't really get past this uh, temptation to compare. But one of the other things that comes out of this temptation of comparing is that we start to grumble. We start to grumble against the circumstances we find ourselves in. If we look back to chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul urges the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. And in that sermon, we even looked at how the, the, um, the Israelites grumbled against God time and time again, even as he delivered them out of Egypt. They continued to grumble against God. They complained about not having water. They complained about not having food. They were not satisfied with manna. And Finally, God punishes them. He judges them for their grumblings against him. We grumble when we are dissatisfied with what God's lot is for us. And it shows us that we are, we are not resting in God alone. But in the second place, as we see Paul saying uh, back in chapter 4 of Philippians, we notice that contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. And he says this twice in our verses he says that he has learned, verse 11, in whatever situation he is to be content. And then he goes on again uh, to say that he has learned the secret of facing plenty. As we go through uh, this life and we face various situations, if we are constantly in the word of God, we are taught how to be content. Like I said, it's part of the ongoing process of sanctification as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we grow in our love for God, it is then that we learn to be content in every and all the situations that we go through in this life. And so, thinking about contentment as something that is learned, we must realize that it is not only by experience or by the things that we are going through, but it is by being in God's Word constantly. So not only life experience, but evaluating that life experience by way of Scripture. So contentment is learned. But most importantly, we learn that contentment is found in God alone. And so rather than focusing on how we can have material possessions or how we can learn to live without certain things that we wish for and long for, our focus ought to be on God. Our focus 
of how we can be content is not so much about what possessions we have and do not have as it is in about us resting in God. As you notice in our verses, uh, Paul then gives us the content of this secret. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the him, as we know from this context, is Jesus Christ. Paul rests in Jesus Christ that he can go through all these things. He can be hungry, he can be, uh, he can be lacking, and he can have plenty. And yet through all these circumstances that he goes through, he is able to be content. And so the secret of contentment is not so much how we interact with the material possessions of this world, but it is about resting in God. As our brother Derek reminded us this past Wednesday at prayer meeting, it is when we trust in an immutable God that we can have peace. It's not when we focus on the things of this world which are constantly changing. And so if we want to know the secret of contentment, it is that we should delight in the Lord. As we have seen in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul calls the Philippians again to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so contentment is not where we come to terms with the fact that God is sovereign over everything we are going through and we sit grumbling and, and just waiting for the difficult season to pass. But here is the greater mystery is that we must rejoice in all things. As we looked at last week, we are not called simply to wait uh, and, and just get by as it were, but rather we are to rejoice in the Lord. We are to hold fast to our God and, and, to, and to live as if he is our dearest possession. It is then that we are showing the world around us that we are truly children of God because though we may need all these material things to survive, although we may need even the necessities, but the way we cling to our God shows that he is our greatest treasure, that he alone is in the one in which we find our identity and our security. And so we are reminded of, Philipp, of, of Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul talks about the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then Paul goes on to list these spiritual blessings that we have. And so something for us to think about when we take stock of our own situations, we tend to focus on what is going on around us. We look at, again, maybe our relationships. We may look at difficult financial situations or an illness that we are dealing with. And we wish, if only, and, and we evaluate our circumstances based off of the external. But we forget, as it were, our heavenly net worth. We forget to, to evaluate our own standing with God and the possessions that we have in Christ Jesus. The blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And if we were to turn our eyes to Jesus, if we were to think about what we are in Christ and who we have in Jesus Christ, then we'd be that much less prone to be complaining about our external circumstances. And so as the hymn reminds us, it is when we turn our eyes upon Jesus that the things of this world will grow strangely dim. It is not that the circumstances around us are changing, but it is because we are looking to Christ, we are holding on to him, and he, he satisfies us, we are satisfied in him alone, that we are able to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves. We remember Job in Job chapter 2, verse 10, after he loses uh, his children and all his possessions and his wife tells him to curse God and to die. But Job remembers that should we only accept uh, evil, should we only accept good from God and not evil, he realizes that though he has been afflicted, though he has gone through all of this uh, tragedy in his life, he remembers that all of it comes from the hand of God. And, and, and we see there in the end of verse 10, Job chapter 2, 
that even in this, Job did not sin against God. He remembers that God is sovereign even in that situation and that he too sent those circumstances for his glory. And that's a difficult thing for us to grasp. I remember a friend of ours um, uh, who passed away during the the time of COVID, a a young friend of ours in his 20s, and he left behind a 10-month-old baby. He passed away very suddenly. But I remember at the funeral service, his widow stood up and she read the eulogy. And she began with the words from the song. She said, Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I should not fall, and so to him I leave it all. Those words were powerful words from a woman who had lost her husband after a week of being sick as she held her baby who was crying and did not understand what had just happened, she was able to testify that this too came from the Lord. That is the mystery of contentment. That no matter what Christians go through, it does not mean we can't rejoice. It doesn't mean that we can't, uh, we can't express our sorrow. As, as Jesus himself wept when Lazarus died, We can go through the emotions, but through it all, we must rest in God. We must remember that our God is sovereign, and regardless of what we are going through, he holds us in his hands, and that he sends all those afflictions our way for his glory. Because as we go through those things, we are sanctified. We are made more like Christ. And as we see at the end of our verses, All praise and all glory goes to God alone. And so this is a difficult thing. I don't know what you are going through today. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know all the details. But if you're a Christian, you do have that comfort. But here's the scary thing. If you are not a Christian, where will you place your hope? When you go through the tragedies of life, when you have nothing else to hold on to, what will you do? We can run to the things of this world which will give us temporary satisfaction, help us to forget for a moment. But tomorrow you have to wake up and face reality again. But it's only when we are in Christ that he gives us the strength, as Paul says in verse 13, to do all things This is the mystery that we see in our verses. So having considered that Christians must firstly learn contentment, let us in the second place look at the fact that they must use their possessions for the Lord. They must use their possessions for the Lord. As Paul continues to thank them in verse 14, he says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. We see that this church, the church in Philippi, did not just send them this one-off gift that Paul is thanking them for uh, via the hand of Epaphroditus. Uh, This church was one that was committed to partnering with Paul. And not only did they labor with him in the gospel, but time and time again, as we see, they supported Paul's ministry. And so as Paul is thanking them, he remembers that he is grateful. And you notice that in this uh, expression of his gratitude, he wants to be balanced. He does not want uh, the Philippians to think for a moment that he is not grateful. He has just come from basically saying, I am content in whatever I go through. And so that could be read wrongly to think that Paul actually didn't need this gift. But that is not the case. Paul is is indebted to the church in Philippi. He expresses his thankfulness and gratitude to them. And yet all the while, 
Paul is very spiritually minded about this gift, as we will see in our verses. Paul is interested more in their spiritual well-being and what this says about them than so much about the gifts, as we will see there in verse 17. Before we, we delve in further, we must remember that all that we have, all the possessions that we own, we own them as stewards. We own them as stewards, that though God has given us a house which might be on our title, or a car, car uh, whose title deeds are in our name, all of those things ultimately belong to God. We are stewards, stewards who will be called to account, as we remember from the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. All that God has given us, he will require an accounting for us on that final day. And so to those to whom much has been given, much will be required. The Lord blesses different people with different gifts, not only materially, but also spiritually. But we are not to sit on those talents. We are not to sit on the gifts that God gives us, but we are to use them for the furtherance of the gospel. We must remember that we are stewards, and that shouldn't make us careless as a manager would, but we should treat whatever God has given us with prudence. We must be careful with how we use what God gives us, but we must also be sacrificial in the way uh, we treat our possessions. And so, again, Psalm 50 verses 10 to 12 remind us that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All that we have belongs to God, and He is in need of nothing. The fact that He allows us to give sacrificially uh, he is his grace unto us because the Lord does not need us to fulfill his purposes. And yet he invites us to, call, to come into the fold and to be involved in this uh, ministry. And so coming back to Philippians, we've seen that this church was one that had partnered with Paul and they had continued to labor alongside him uh, faithfully. But then we want to notice that what Paul is most concerned about, as we see there in verse 17, I read, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. As I have already alluded to this point, Paul's concern is what this gift that he has received by way of uh, Epaphroditus says about the church in Philippi. No doubt they are giving sacrificially. Remember, this is at uh, the institution of the New Testament church. They do not have councils and conventions uh, as we do today to, to put money aside to send to the missionaries. This is a church that is a fairly young church plant, a church that is suffering persecution, but they are giving to the Apostle Paul, who is, uh, remember that Paul is in prison at this particular time. So they are giving sacrificially, and Paul rejoices in this uh, because he realizes that it shows something about their spiritual uh, welfare, about their growth in the Lord. And they have understood the importance that the gospel needs to continue going forth. But they've also learned that they should not only love their Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, and mind, but that they should also love their neighbor as themselves. That they must give sacrificially, as this is pleasing to the Lord, as we read there in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. It is when we give sacrificially in this way uh, by thinking of our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, but more importantly about the work of the gospel. It is then when we are giving God all the glory that uh, he deserves. And so we go back to uh, earlier on in this letter where Paul is talking about the Philippians and what this says about their own growth. Chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, I'll, I'll read a few verses before that, starting from verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what, it is, what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul has been praying this prayer for the church in Philippi, and as one who has, in a sense, been part of the birth of this church in Philippi, he rejoices that they are growing in godliness. And this fruit that he talks about back in chapter 4 is that he sees the fruit of righteousness in 
the Philippians because they are growing in Christ-likeness and they are bearing fruit for the ministry of the gospel. And so Paul is again saying there in chapter 4 and verse 17, he is not seeking more of the same gift, which could be another wrong way someone would interpret uh, Paul's gratitude, that he is so grateful, he is so thankful, that he's hoping that more would come from the same source. But Paul reminds them that this is not his main intention. He seeks the fruit that increases uh, to their credit. And he looks forward to that final day when the, the Lord shall return. And he uh, hopes that they will be presented before the Lord with the fruit that they have borne uh, through faithful ministry in the gospel. And then we continue in verse 18, and we notice how Paul sees this as an act of worship. And this is quite incredible. Paul says in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now look at how he describes this gift. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The wording that Paul uses here is very interesting because it's the language that is used for sacrifices that were brought before the tabernacle to make sacrifice and offering for the sins of the people, to cleanse them and purify them of their sins. And so it's interesting that Paul is referring to the gifts that the, the Philippians have given him, material gifts, uh, financial gifts. He speaks about those gifts as a pleasing aroma to God. And so this is what we need to think about. When we think about our possessions, we do remember that everything we have belongs to God, but that ultimately when we give towards the work of the gospel, we are ultimately giving to the Lord if we are doing it in the right heart attitude, and that the Lord sees it as a sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable before him. But what is what is more interesting, as we know, that, that the sacrifices at the tabernacle did not fully cleanse, and they were unable to purify the people of their sins the way Jesus Christ was able to. That the offering that Jesus Christ made was a perfect one. And as, as Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 reminds us, I'll read verse 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Isn't it incredible that Paul is using that same language of the gift that the Philippians have sent for him? So it's as we think about what God has given us and as we think about our own giving, we must remember that it is an important part of our worship. It's so easy for us to think about other aspects of our worship when we pray and we, we listen to God's word uh, preached and we sing. We can think that those are the more important parts of our worship. But Paul here is speaking about their gifts and how this is a pleasing aroma before God. Sometimes we, we tend to not want to talk about finances and giving and tithing because it's an awkward and uncomfortable conversation. But we do need to be reminded what the scriptures are teaching us. We do need to remember that this is an important part of our worship and that as we give, we must do so in a sacrificial manner. I like uh, the way one author, the, the author of the book, The God Ask, puts it. He, he's talking about uh, raising support for ministry and for missions. And he, he, he realizes that for a lot of missionaries, it's difficult to go from church to church asking people uh, to give towards the work that they are hoping to start. But he reminds such missionaries and church planters that essentially what they are asking people to do is to give, to invest their money in a good uh, endeavor, a gospel enterprise. And so they're not asking for that money for themselves but rather they are helping people who have been blessed by God's uh, blessings to put those funds, to put those resources where God would have them for the furtherance of the gospel. And so his perspective, he reminds us again that all that we have and all that others have has been given to them by God and ultimately belongs to the Lord. And so if the Lord has called you to raise support, has called you to a particular ministry, 
and you are struggling with that, do remember that even the people you go to speak to, the people you approach uh, for support, remember that even those funds belong to the Lord. And that should help us to keep things in perspective. But notice that not only is it an act of worship, but that there is a blessing that is promised. Going back to our verses, verse 18, Paul says, I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, appreciating what the Philippians have done in giving sacrificially to this work, remembers that he himself has been supplied for. His needs have been taken care of. And his, his perspective is, again, very incredible because remember that at this point, he is under house arrest. And yet he is able to say, I am well supplied. He's not saying I'm getting by or I'm as well as I could be in these situations. But he is saying, I am well supplied. I have received full payment for what I have labored for for the work I have done for the ministry. And so it is based on his own testimony of how God is taking care of him there while he's on house arrest, that he says to the Philippians, my God will supply every need of yours. And so this is not to promote us to think about uh, what like the health and wealth gospel teaches, that if you plant a seed, the Lord will you know, multiply it and, and so on. But it is true that the scriptures teach us that when we give sacrificially of what the Lord has blessed us, he does take care of our needs. And that is, that is biblical. That is what scripture teaches. And so out of fear of the wrong doctrine uh, that our, our friends have, have interpreted this to mean, we should not shy away from the blessing that is promised to those who give of themselves sacrificially. Again, it may be materially or it may be how you give of your time and your energies. You sacrifice so much for the ministry and the Lord takes care of you. And many of you who labor faithfully in this way know this to be true, that the Lord has indeed provided for you. While you have given of yourself, you've worked so hard, the Lord has provided for you and taken care of you and your family. And that's one thing I must take a moment to just appreciate about this particular church, that from the time we've come, we have so appreciated how this church has given sacrificially to the work of the ministry. There are a number of missionaries that are supported, for, uh, supported by this church. And every time, as far as I can remember, that we put out a figure, it seems that we always seem to exceed that and give above and beyond. And all glory and praise go to God for that. And so the encouragement is that we must keep on doing that. We should not get weary. And the only way that we can do that is if we keep this heavenly perspective on the earthly possessions we can fall into the danger of finding our security in giving. That's not the end in itself. We should not feel that because we give, we are better people, but rather we must remember these two truths. We must learn to be content, and we must remember that we must use our possessions for the Lord. And it is while we do that, we can keep on laboring and doing the good that we have been doing as a church. And may we continue to exceed and go above and beyond what we have already done in the past. Because as we see here in verse 20, as we do this, as we are a gospel-centered church that is giving and receiving, it is then that God gets all the glory. Verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so as, as Paul winds up this letter, as he gets to the end of it, and he thinks about this partnership and how they have served him, and he has continued to talk about this, he rejoices because ultimately all the glory goes to God. The glory goes to God that the Philippians are giving sacrificially. The glory goes to God that Paul has been uh, taken care of. And the glory goes to God because Paul is content in the Lord. That though his external circumstances change, he trusts in God alone. And he clings to his uh, heavenly inheritance that he has in Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the end of this letter and as we come to the end of this message this morning, for a moment for us to think about how 
we view our own possessions, how we view our possessions. Do we have a heavenly perspective on the possessions that God has given us? Or are we holding on to them too dearly? Have they become an idol for us? And oftentimes the Lord teaches us this by taking some of those idols away, that we may again cling to God. Because remember, our God is a jealous God and that he will not share his glory with any other. And so if there is any idolatry in us, he will cleanse us of that through his sanctifying work in our lives. God gets all the glory when Christians living in this world are able to have all these possessions and, and live in this world and yet be distinctly different. As again, we learned this morning, we are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We have been called out of this world to be different. And so may the Lord help us in this regard. Let us take a moment to just reflect on the message and then I will pray for us. Holy, holy, holy are you, God. We worship you and we adore you. For you are more precious to us than gold or silver. Oh Lord, we pray that you would draw us closer to you once again, even as we've heard your word proclaimed. We pray that you would help us to live as people who have been called out of this world that we would shine forth your glory in the way we live in this world. May you keep us, may you preserve us and protect us from the entanglements that come from living in this world. May we place our hope in you alone. For we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.